0: Welcome to episode 17 of the TTM Academy podcast. I'm your co-host Felipe Turan, and I'm here today with Dr. Ben editor in chief of the TTM Academy and director of the Center for Resuscitation Science here at University of Pennsylvania. What is the TTM Academy? The Penn TTM Academy is University of Pennsylvania's multidisciplinary initiative to improve quality of care following cardiac arrest. The TTM Academy is a comprehensive educational platform developed by the Center for Resuscitation Science at the University of Pennsylvania that is designed to provide training in all aspects of post-cardiac arrest care, including targeted template management, therapies or TTM. You can check us out at www.penttm.com where you can find all episodes of this podcast and much more, including online training courses, live courses and workshops. You can also follow us on Twitter at PennTTM, where you can send us your questions or ideas for future topics you would like us to discuss. Today, we are discussing another important topic, and we're going to be reviewing a recently published article on a topic that is uh, dear to Ben and my, my heart, um, and that is neuroprognostication, one of the central topics that we visit here in this uh, the TTM Academy podcast. The article that we're going to be reviewing today is an article published recently in Critical Care Medicine by authors Dr. Carlina Maciel, um, the lead author, a neurointensivist, and Dr. David Greed is the senior author, uh, both established names in this field. And their uh, paper was titled "Neuroprognostication Practices in Post-Cardiac Arrest Patients, an International Survey of Critical Care Providers. This is a study conducted um, internationally, where it was a, a cross-sectional study, web-based survey, where they surveyed um, members from different societies, from the Neurocritical Care Society, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and the American Academy of Neurology, all physicians and clinicians who routinely manage unconscious conscious um, cardiac arrest patients. And they wanted to ask this uh, physicians um, the practice patterns of Postcardic arrest They want to characterize the practitioner demographics and the current neuroprognostic uh, pac- practice patterns among these providers. So, Ben, why don't you tell us what they did in this important study?
1: Thanks, Felipe. Yes, and so this study just came out in 2020, so uh, just this year, and it's an important look into current practice patterns. As we've discussed in previous podcasts, neuroprognostication is a very complicated topic following cardiac arrest, and I know many listeners struggle with this and struggle with education of their providers. Probably one of the most important bits of context to make sure we have on hand, so we're on the same page, is that the international guidelines for post-arrest care stress that you cannot use the clinical examination reliably for at least 72 hours following arrest. That is to say, if someone has diminished corneal reflexes or other brainstem reflexes are not normal for days following arrest, we cannot use that to guide withdrawal of care decisions. And that's at least 72 hours. The guidelines are quite clear that if targeted temperature management is employed, which usually means there's concomitant sedatives and paralytics, which cloud the picture, it may be even longer. And data from our group published a few years ago showed that many patients show their first signs of clinical arousal on days five, six, or even seven following cardiac arrest. Other work by a colleague, Sarah Perman and and others at University of Colorado, has also shown that it appears that many patients get withdrawn before these three days. So despite these strong recommendations from international guidelines, patients are having withdrawal of care decisions made on days one or two. So that's confusing. Um, And it raises the context for the study where these investigators said, well, there's varying practice, it seems. So, what is the perspective? What what is out there? What are physicians caring for cardiac arrest patients doing and thinking on a regular basis that can help us understand uh, where they're coming from? And so, these authors did a survey, as you stated, and they had 762 physicians included in their survey. This survey was conducted. It's important to note in 2016, so it's not the the freshest set of data. Although I would suggest that all of the guidelines were well in place before 2016 regarding neuroprognostication.
0: And that's something important I think to highlight here, right? There is and I think it's one of the strengths of the study and, and that supports uh, I think the importance of their findings. There are multiple guidelines out there, right? There's multiple guidelines from different societies, from uh, different specialties, um, on these topic of uh, management of post-cardiac arrest um, care. And that's important I think because Um, the way some of these guidelines have been put together um, and the recommendations, uh, to some extent, are not exactly consistent across some of these guidelines.
1: Yes, I think that's fair. So the American Heart Association certainly has resuscitation guidelines, the European Resuscitation Council, the American Academy of Neurology has weighed in on this. And it is true, there are some differences between them, but the fundamental point, I think, that the clinical exam is unreliable for days following arrest is really important. And it's also pretty clear uh, from these guidelines and also from the research over the last decade that many of the quote-unquote more objective measures that could be used, serologic biomarkers, neuroimaging the data still remain fairly murky fairly unclear and so these were some of the the questions that these investigators really wanted to ask their audience now It was an international survey, so 22 countries were involved, but it's important to note that about 80% of all the respondents were actually from the United States. So while technically it was international, it was heavily weighted towards the United States and therefore probably reflects US practice patterns. And so an important limitation for those listening from overseas, it's less clear to me that the study accurately reflects physician perspectives, say, in Europe or in Scandinavia or Asia. So with with those sort of caveats in mind, I think, though, the fundamental points, and if I may, I'll go on to the results of the survey. So 762 physicians were surveyed, and the questions they were asked were about what tools um, at their disposal were very important or less important in neuroprognostication. And interestingly, most of the physicians surveyed said the clinical exam is crucial. Now, that sounds good and generic, right? I mean, we all believe the clinical exam of patients in the general sense have value. However, it does fly in the face of these guidelines that for this specific situation, the several days following cardiac arrest, anoxic encephalopathy, the clinical exam is less useful. So most physicians felt the clinical exam was a very, very important tool.
0: And just to kind of put this into context, we highly recommend listeners to go back to podcasts three and five, where we covered some of this Uh, different modalities, but we can classify, organize the different Uh, prognostication modalities in four major groups, right? There's clinical examination, electrophysiologic modalities, chemical biomarkers, and neuroimaging modalities, right?
1: That's right, and and so you can think of it in those four, and it seemed most physicians put that one category of the clinical exam as most important. And and they actually um, were asked about two different things, both the neurologic exam, but then also the presence of myoclonic status epilepticus. Now, myoclonic status is generally and historically been considered a poor prognostic sign. So if patients are having myoclonic status, it is generally considered they have a poor outcome. However, and as the authors of this study point out, data are continuing to accumulate that the false positive rate for this is higher than we'd like. That is to say, some patients have myoclonic jerks or even status and can survive well. The other point to make is Myoclonic jerking uh, does not make it myoclonic status epilepticus. There's a precise definition that's included in the guidelines, which is you have to have myoclonic epileptiform activity lasting longer than 30 minutes. So this doesn't mean a a few uh, myoclonic jerks over a few minute period, but rather 30 minutes of sustained myoclonic activity. And so when asked, the physicians surveyed said that the myoclonic activity was very, very important for making decisions. And the clinical exam was very, very important. And they rated these higher than, for example, somatosensory evoke potentials or SSEPs. Now that's especially interesting because now we sort of have a control or a comparator group. The data for SSEP is very strong for neuroprognostication, the data for clinical exam is poor for neuroprognostication. Yet these authors, or sorry, these uh, survey respondents uh, felt the clinical exam was more important than SSCP. And for those listeners who aren't familiar, SSCP or somatosensory evoked potentials, this is a bedside exam uh, that can be easily performed um, in the ICU or on the ward um, by neurologists. It's an electrical uh, median nerve test that actually has very, very strong data supporting its value in prognostication.
0: How about uh, corneal reflexes, uh, pupillary reflexes, and other parts of the neurological examination that are commonly performed in? And patients.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that, Felipe, because I think actually it's the uh, brainstem reflexes where we have the biggest problem. There has been a, a long uh, teaching point throughout residency programs and neurology culture and internal medicine culture, and even in, in my world of emergency medicine, that brainstem reflexes are important. And I would not disagree with that. So, so we all believe that blown, dilated, sluggish pupils or no-gag reflex, these are bad signs for patients. The problem is, while generally true, it's much harder to say this conclusively for patients following cardiac arrest. It's just the nature of this patient population. They're just different. And when asked, most of the respondents felt that indeed brainstem reflexes were very important, and in particular, the corneal reflex uh, and the cough reflex were felt by these physicians to be very, very important. Now, I'll tell you that many patients, and this has been well published, and and many of us in the field know this well uh, anecdotally, is that many patients will have absent corneal reflexes or fixed eyelid pupils and can still make a full recovery. The strict positive predictive value of those signs are very poor, and yet this practice persists. It persists, I think, because of this general culture around the importance of brainstem reflexes and the fact that there are data that brainstem reflexes are important for coma in general, just not for the specific instance of post-arrest coma. And so what we find and what was clear from the survey response is that people are using the brainstem reflexes too much in the first two days. Uh, sorry. And too rarely. That's right, too early. And the, and the other point that's worth mentioning, actually, is when they were asked, how do you assess the pupils? Most people, as you might expect in the survey, said, well, we just do it with a flashlight and sort of naked eye evaluation, that is qualitatively. There's growing data that qualitative assessment of pupils is difficult. There's a lot of inter-rater variation. Um, sluggish to one person is not sluggish to the next person. None of us have a perfect millimeter ruler in our minds. There are newer and evolving technologies for quantitative pupil assessment. There are actually several publications just over the last few years using quantitative pupilometry to assess reflexes after cardiac arrest. And, and I think this is a very important way to go. And, and the authors of this survey study seem to suggest that as well in their discussion, saying, you know, if people are gonna rely on pupils at some point, at day three, at day four, at day five, Shouldn't it be quantitative or at least more rigorously performed than just a flashlight in the eyes? And I tend to agree with that. So those who are interested in this topic, there are several papers on quantitative pupillometry following cardiac arrest published in the last few years. You can look to one author um, uh, in particular if you need a name to search ODDO. Dr. Odo has been doing some of this work in Europe, as have others. Uh, So in any case, so not only are they over-relying on brainstem reflexes, there may be better ways to even do it for when it is appropriate.
0: So Ben, why don't you uh, tell us more in detail what was the perceived prognostic value that uh, physicians in the survey um, gave or assigned to the different modalities?
1: Yeah, so in general, they felt that clinical exam was very important. And then they put serologic markers uh, less so. I I think the the other important point about where they put their value is the timing. And, And actually, I'm gonna now turn to figure three in their paper, which reflects the perceived value of timing of the various evaluations. As we've mentioned, the guidelines recommend at the very least waiting three days, uh, 72 hours before the clinical exam can be of value. And I would suggest that this is also the case for other modalities. There's growing data that CT, MRI, EEG, biomarkers, in the first day or two are less valuable than perhaps a little later. Um, To say this very generally, it seems the dust needs to settle before we can really get a sense of the value of these things. And and I might say that in particular for neuroimaging, uh, the data are increasingly clear that neuroimaging may play a role such as MRI or CT, but that initial evaluation often finds a lot of abnormalities of uncertain value. And in this study, uh, the survey respondents tended to uh, favor neuroimaging as a modality perhaps more than it should as well. But as far as the timing, in Figure 3, uh, they asked survey respondents, when can you do any sort of definitive recommendations regarding prognosis? And And thankfully, Uh, the majority of respondents did say on day three or later, so that's good. However, a significant minority, um, maybe as much as a quarter to a third, yeah, of all physicians said you could do it on day one or two. And that's just uh, uh, not uh, consistent with guidelines and not consistent with the data. So the fundamental uh, take home message here is, Houston, we have a problem. There's a lot of confusion and many practicing physicians out there aren't fully aware that you have to wait at least till day three to use uh, clinical data to decide whether to withdraw now as i pointed out in in an earlier podcast this is very different from allowing family to withdraw um, as powers of attorney if someone had a living will or directive that they did not want this kind of care that's different so i want to be very clear about that if family says my loved one never wanted this we want to withdraw that's can be acceptable the other form of withdrawal that can be acceptable is if the patient's clearly more abundant you know, if you're escalating pressors, if the lactate's climbing, if you're in persistent shock, I mean, we are clinicians, and we have to make decisions about futility of care. Those two situations, notwithstanding, in general, uh, we have to be very mindful of giving patients time to declare themselves.
0: That's a great point. So, and I, I want to poke you well, a little bit more on this on this question, perhaps, sort of interpret these findings. Um, I think it is, as you pointed out, it is overall just challenging to interpret some of these findings in cardiac arrest patients just because of the um, pathophysiology of the disease. Um, unfortunately, uh, uh, therapies like targeted pe- ter- ter- temperature management and hypothermia have, uh, specifically, have further complicated this, right? Um, the science has changed in that um, there is definitely a component uh, of, of this delay, of, this, of the timing here, that we have seen over time change due to the effect of uh, hypothermia. And so uh, I wonder if some of the, uh, if those folks that perhaps uh, pointed out 24 hours as the time where they could uh, accurately make decisions on redone therapy, um, I wonder if that some of that is influenced by the lack of understanding of the effect of uh, hypothermia or the effect um, of targeted temperature management in, in this patients, in this population.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there are major educational gaps in uh, understanding different patients and their contexts, And I think one of the things that people... Um, I think sounds reasonable to practitioners, but they don't fully appreciate, is when you institute targeted temperature management, it's in the context of sedation and paralysis often, at the very least sedation, and it is well known that when patients are cooler, uh, metabolism of many of these uh, sedatives is slowed. Um, so patients are essentially uh, marinating in medications that will cloud the neurologic picture, which is, I think, one of the reasons why the guidelines are quite clear that that three-day is, is at a minimum, and they they clearly say that in the settings of TTM and sedation, it may be four or five days, which speaks to our data showing that people often wake up on day five or six or even seven, and, and we very often have patients who are uh, really showing no signs of response whatsoever for three or four days and still make full recovery, and a lot of our time is spent educating our providers saying, you know, don't rush to judgment. Uh, This is a marathon, not a sprint, and we have to be cautious about neuroprognostication prognostication in the setting of TTM, absolutely. And I think that's something that this survey study clearly showed uh, remains a problem, and it's really an educational problem. I think it speaks to the fact that we, we publish these guidelines, but all of us are very busy, Many of us don't read the guidelines or don't understand the data behind them. And and that's to be forgiven. We're, we're just busy taking care of our day jobs. Uh, but but we have to find clever ways, this podcast perhaps being one of them, to get the word out to as many people so that we can really improve, I guess, what we'd call knowledge translation.
0: Absolutely. So another word of the uh, interesting findings here is that there was they did see uh, some difference in terms of the specialty, specifically neurologists, I think that neurological examination is more valuable. I, I thought that was somewhat expected uh, to be found. Neurologists are probably the most avid experts of neurological examination. Um, at the same time, they seem to believe that uh, somatosensory evoked potentials are more important uh, and they tend to, they had a perceived value of this modality. Um, that was greater than, than the rest of uh, specialties. I think, um, I don't know, what, what, what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's, it's challenging to dig deep into these subgroups because we don't know exactly who these people are. And in my experience, and I suspect this is part of what's going on here too, and I, I suspect neurologists listening to this podcast may agree, there's a lot of differences within neurology regarding the culture of care. And the specific division I'm referring to is neurocritical care versus general neurology or or other uh, non-critical care neurology. You know, I think um, neurologists are very sophisticated with clinical exam, and it's been a very important part of of their work for for a very long time. But neurocritical care physicians... I think, have a somewhat better understanding of cardiac arrest and its nuances and, and can put the clinical exam in context. So I think there may be a little bit here of the deeper culture of neurology, um, emphasizing the clinical exam versus neurocritical care and understanding some of these other modalities. At least that's my hunch. I could be wrong. We, we don't know that to be sure. But I do feel that one of the key things here is that cardiac arrest is a very specialized disease requiring specialized knowledge and i worry a lot uh, about who is taking care of these patients and who's consulting on these patients and their knowledge of the general data applied to this specific clinical instance i would at least leave readers as we conclude this with a couple of points that i'll enumerate so point number one most important you really need to work with your Hospital staff to understand that you need to wait at least 72 hours to use the clinical examination to guide neuroprognosis following cardiac arrest. And that may be longer, of course, with TTM. The second really key take-home point is that one of the tools that has been shown to be useful is SSEPs or somatosensory evoked potentials. And if you aren't using that or at least don't have that in your toolkit, I would put on your action list to have a conversation with your uh, local neurologist to see if that could be made available and an option for some patients falling arrest. Item number three, which we didn't talk about much, but I think deserves a summary point, is that the serologic biomarkers, things like nerve-specific enolase and other blood tests, really still are uh, very poorly predictive. So if you're worried, should I be doing some of these fancy blood tests, I would say no, Um, and and the data uh, from the survey suggests people are confused about these serologic biomarkers, and it's with good reason. Point number four, I think, is that we need more um, education to avoid early withdrawal more generally and to set expectations, especially towards hospital leadership, hospital uh, management, that, that these patients are deserving of time and attention because many of them can do well. And I think those are uh, the, the key points. And once again, if you wanna read more, uh, this article is in Critical Care Medicine in 2020. The first author is Maciel, M-A-C-E-L, Carolina Maciel, and I congratulate her and David Greer, who's now Chair of Neurology at Boston University, uh, for this work.
0: All right. Great, Ben. I think this is a good point to wrap this up. And thank you to listeners for joining the TTM Academy podcast. We'll be here waiting for you with episode 18 very soon. That is all from the Center for Resuscitation Science at University of Pennsylvania. Bye-bye.